This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, protests, pressure and running battles. What next in the fight for Egypt's future? They get shot at, people die, and they're still on the streets because they've had enough. I did not intend to stand again. The people of Egypt, particularly the young people of Egypt, we hear your voices. BFBS. Sidrek. Headlines. Egypt's army is trying to keep apart supporters and opponents of the country's President Mubarak. There have been more clashes in Tahir Square in the centre of Cairo. Earlier, Egypt's new Prime Minister apologised for yesterday's violence but denied the regime hired thugs to attack protesters. A soldier who died in Afghanistan trying to help a wounded colleague has been repatriated to the UK. Private Martin Bell was killed in an explosion in Helmand province last month. The independent reviewer of anti-terror laws is warning the UK is a safe haven for foreign terror suspects. Lord Carlisle says human rights rulings have made it harder to deport people who are believed to be dangerous. A committee of MPs wants to know why almost £2 million from the foreign aid budget was spent on the Pope's visit to the UK last year. Ministers say it's because the Catholic Church funds work in developing countries. A bidding battle's erupted on eBay for a Harrier jump jet. The restored plane spent 26 years in the RAF. It's on offer at a starting price of £70,000. Hosni Mubarak can never have imagined his 30-year rule of Egypt might end like this. I wanted to be with my brothers and sisters, the young, the old, the children, all the people that have suffered during Mubarak's terms for 30 years. The status quo is not sustainable. A change must take place. My first responsibility right now is to regain calm and stability in our home country to ensure the peaceful transition of leadership. I did not intend to stand again. Thank you what you did. Now you are very old men. Go leave us alone. The sounds of a tumultuous week in Egypt. A fortnight ago, a popular uprising in Tunisia swept the country's president from office. Now that storm has hit Egypt. Protesters want greater political and economic reform. They want an end to government corruption. And they want an end to Hosni Mubarak's three decades in power. He's offered to step down in September. Not enough for many of those on the streets. But in the last 24 hours, it's looked increasingly like the anti-Mubarak protests are turning into a violent battle for the future of Egypt. The protests have centred on Cairo's Tahrir Square. Amar al-Bayoumi is one of the thousands of demonstrators there and he's on the line now from his home a few streets away. Thanks for your time, Amar al-Bayoumi. What has the mood been like? It has been changing a lot in the last day or so. Absolutely. Um, I came in from uh, London on uh, yesterday morning. I was here in Cairo up until Thursday and then returned to London 
participated in demonstrations in front of the Egyptian embassy in London, but really felt compelled to come back and stand in resistance to this regime. What we saw, I spent the entire day in Tahrir Square um, yesterday, I'm sorry, day before yesterday, um, and uh, up until the uh, speech of President Mubarak uh, providing his so-called concessions. Uh, the atmosphere in the square then, the day before yesterday, was peaceful, a broad mix, a cross-section of Egyptians, there were Christians, some of the Muslim Brotherhood, different views being discussed, absolutely no physical violence whatsoever among the people. It was a cooperative and uh, peaceful community uh, opposed to this government. And um, I was not in the square yesterday, but just a few blocks down I did witness some of the brutality of the thugs of the Mubarak regime. Uh, they're calling themselves pro-Mubarak or pro-security. Uh, simply put, uh, their pro-stability for them is simply maintaining this pyramid of, of, of brutality and corruption. So for those that are saying they're concerned about their livelihood, in fact, they're actually correct. Their livelihood being thugs for this brutal dictatorship is at risk. Uh, what, people, ev what evidence do you have that they are pro-Mubarak thugs? Um, my evidence is as follows. Number one, looking at where the interests are in any situation politically for your viewers to consider, not to take my view, but to consider who has what at stake. We have a 30-year dictatorship, police state, with only the semblance of democracy, with absolutely no um, open discussion of issues, any sorts of demonstrations in the past have been cracked down. I've felt the baton of the security forces in going to different demonstrations, be it related to the massacre of Palestinians in Jericho and the complicity of this government in the relationships with Israel, or opposing the invasion of Iraq. Um, the, I, in the Tahrir Square today, I was there all up until about 2 p.m. today with my father. Uh, we have a table there that I looked at all the different ID cards that were retrieved from those who came into the square. I saw about 30 of them. They were military or National Democratic Party IDs uh, from those who were taken um, and not taken for purposes of abuse or arrest or torture, but taken uh, during their attacks. The weapons were confiscated, and they were detained by the people. So these are the evidence I see. I also see shells from U.S. manufactured tear gas. So we have to be clear about what the situation is here. And, and, how, and how, how far are you prepared to go? If the protests become even more violent, would you stay hmm. out there protesting? Well, let's be clear about what we're saying. The protests are becoming violent. Anyone who has no idea what the situation is can observe the footage yesterday from the various broadcasts. Uh, there was a peaceful demonstration. A gang of people, you can, my, I'm, I'm most definite that they, they are Mubarak thugs protecting their interests. Some of them came in on horseback, which is uh, from the pyramids, one of the most prominent business people who's pro uh, uh, Gamal Mubarak uh, sent in some of his folks. They're protecting their interests, their financial interests through corruption here. I see um, the, the the wave continuing as is with further attacks. We were going to return to Tahrir today. Uh, there are gangs uh, going around in taxis, intimidating people, trying to bring All in right. medical supplies or food to the people in the square, confiscating those with force. Um, right. The evidence is clear. Look at 
look at what is at stake here. You don't just simply dismantle a 30-year dictatorship and all, all the right. people that are benefiting, benefiting right. from it. And there we must leave it. Amrel Bayoumi, thanks for your time. Thank you Obviously very a very moving Bye-bye. situation. Thank you. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee joins me in the studio. And on the line is Mustafa Abdel-Himal, research fellow at the anti-extremism think tank, the Quilliam Foundation. Christopher, first of all... Um, Put this into context. We, we talk, he talked there about thugs, uh, pro-Mubarak thugs, but there must also be legitimate pro-Mubarak protesters who are peacefully protesting. There are, are pro-Mubarak um, people who have probably been bussed in. The evidence is they may have been bussed in and therefore organised. Even the time that it's taken to get them in, they've had to have been organised. But it's also true that everything that I've looked at and I'm doing it from a distance, I know, but everything I've looked at and people I've spoken to there, they also say a lot of the people who are against the protesters are not Mubarak thugs, and the people I've spoken to have no axe to grind. They're not Mubarak fans themselves. So I think we have to be careful by saying, well, that lot over the other side of the barricades are all sent in by Mubarak. In fact, the the, uh, military, rather, not the police, the military are trying to keep them out of the square at the moment. Mustafa Abel-Himal, initially the security forces were brutal in their treatment of the protesters. Within days, the military had announced it wouldn't use force against them. How crucial is the military stance in deciding the outcome of all of this? I think it's incredibly crucial, and uh, as, uh, as I think we've heard in the last few days, uh, that Egyptians hold uh, their army very highly, and the, they, have, they have a lot of trust uh, towards the army, and they think actually, uh, or they hope at least, that the, that the final word would be uh, the army's final word, and that will side with the people. Uh, Christopher, just talk about the strategic importance of Egypt. Egypt is very, has been very important. I will tell you just a small fact. I mean, if, if one, one of the hopes that whatever government is there after Friday or whenever is that the 1979 uh, treaty with Israel holds, it is the one border, the Sinai border, it's the one border that Israel hasn't fenced off. Now, that seems very symbolic, but it is also particularly true, and that's important. There are a lot of things that one could turn around and say... Uh, Egypt has been the go-between in so many ways for the Americans, for the British, for all sorts of other people in trying to get some sort of peace settlement in the Middle East. It's also a question that's got the Suez Canal running through, uh, through it. That's particularly important. You wait, you wait till the Suez Canal gets blocked up and you watch the price of fuel go up. It is a strategic, a strategically important, and that's one of the reasons that the Americans in particular have, 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 have kept him with Mubarak. Don't forget Mubarak, when he came to power 30 years ago, was a hero. He ran the Air Force in the war. A great, great hero. Indeed, and the United States pump billions of pounds into Egypt. What kind of influence can they have behind the scenes? The Americans can have a lot of influence by, behind the scenes, by, for example, and they have done, by actually sending an envoy to, uh, to uh, Cairo uh, and saying, listen, it is time to go. What arrangements can we make for your ease to ease the transition? And also with the, uh, with, 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 with the uh, forces themselves, the military. The military is the key to what happens next. You can't, it, it, even the wildest protester can't expect it all to come together like tomorrow, like Saturday. It'll take months to actually put the whole thing on a, on a good fitting. In the meantime, the, the military has got the wiring diagram of actually how to hold together the country because what a country needs, as we've seen in Iraq, it needs security. Mustafa, in the late 80s, we saw communist regimes topple across Eastern Europe. Is this the Middle East's time of change, do you think? 
Um, I, I think so. I think so. It doesn't really necessarily mean it's the the age of revolutions, and it will and it will uh, will be running through different countries. But I think there are certain political changes are coming on the way. Um, whether people realizing, like people in the street, uh, realizing their own um, capacities actually of change, or governments, Western governments realizing that sustainable. Um, future for this region means maybe support to, to democracy and uh, and uh, and the free and the free elections and uh, not necessarily sub, uh, allying with 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 dictatorial systems. Um, this I think will bring uh, I think even will actually enhance the the Middle East and Western relationships in the future um, when people actually would think that the West would gain more credibility by by supporting their own voices and. Um, creating the pluralist societies that many Egyptians are calling for now. And Jordan's king has appointed a new prime minister this week. Yemen's president has said he won't seek another term in office. Do you think this will spread further? And how much further? It's, it's, it's quite difficult, actually, to, to, to speculate in, in the future. But I think um, we see things happening. Yes, the, the Jordanian king changed the government. The Yemeni president has said something, even though actually he said the same statement a couple of years ago. Um, um, also, the Kuwaiti prince, he, uh, but this was actually before the Egyptian protest, he, he issued something like $4,000 to each Kuwaiti citizen. Uh, so some countries can afford that, while others can only sack a government. But um, Algeria, Algeria, also on the 12th of February, they're calling for nationwide demonstrations. Um, Syria on the 5th of February, in a couple of days' time, they are also calling for something um, to be in the street. Um, I think reactions will be different. I think the the capacity to mobilize to mobilize people in the street will be different. But I think governments will definitely learn a very good lesson from what happened in Tunisia a couple of weeks ago, and now what's happening from Egypt. Mustafa Abu Himal from the Quilliam Foundation. Thanks for your time. Sit rep with Still to come this week. Now Nimrod's gone. Are the new Chinooks the next target for defence cuts? Is Twitter a dictator's biggest enemy? It certainly seems to have spooked the Egyptian regime, which in the earliest stages of the protests effectively shut off internet access across the country. Mobile phones fell silent too, in a failed effort to make it almost impossible to organise large-scale demonstrations. On the line is Anna Doble, online and social media editor at Channel 4 News. Thanks for your time, Anna. This internet crackdown was one of the first things the Egyptian regime did, which demonstrates how scared they were about its potential impact, doesn't it? Hi there. Yes, it, it really does. And it, what it shows most of all is how modern communication does threaten the powerful. Uh, we've seen that before in certainly Iran. Uh, and we know that uh, at the moment uh, 40 countries around the world do specifically filter out um, certain Internet sites and services. We know about China prohibiting foreign news wires. Um, but the blanket shutdown um, that we've seen in Egypt this week is pretty much unprecedented. Um, and, and yet there have been some innovative solutions, uh, like a service that turns voicemail messages into tweets. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, uh, that was one that was called, it was a collaboration between Google and Twitter um, called Speak to Tweet. The idea was that uh, you can just phone in and speak your message and it will tweet on your behalf. It, it had um, mixed success. It was used in Egypt on the ground. We had some trouble here, actually, trying to listen into those comments. I think things like that do find their way around um, a regime that is trying to close down communication. They're always going to be innovators and code writers, either inside a country or internationally, who can develop um, gizmos and clever ways of getting around um, any kind of block.
You mentioned China. China and Russia do engage with social networking sites, hiring people to post pro-government messages and monitor discussions. Do you think shutting off the internet, as they did in Egypt, was actually an own goal? Um, it's, it's a hard one to say. It would seem in many ways that it was. Um, and that, uh, like you say, we, we know the Russian Prime Minister has his own Twitter feed. We know that Ahmadinejad in Iran has used YouTube. We know that um, in Iran, uh, kind of Twitter was turned back on itself in, in some respects. And, um, uh, you know, we have seen uh, other dictatorships around the world and um, take a different approach to, to the Internet. Um, we do have some information that we're actually investigating today about pro-government text messages getting out during that blackout. Um, from Mubarak's um, people, possibly in the National Democratic Party. We know that some messages were getting through that so-called blackout, telling people not to go and protest but to be loyal to the country, uh, sort of um, patriotic um, messages. So uh, there is some attempt um, in, in Egypt to harness modern technology going on. Um, and then there is another argument that, of course, blocking the Internet actually makes people get out of their, their homes and uh, and go out and physically protest rather than update Facebook or uh, write a blog. Anna, stay with us. Uh, intelligence services in Britain have been told to make much more use of Facebook and Twitter. The country's top civil servant, Sir Gus O'Donnell, told the Iraq inquiry last week the protests in Egypt show the value of what he called open-source intelligence and said GCHQ should be taking it much more seriously. Um, Anna, he called it a barometer of public opinion. He's got a point, hasn't he? I think clearly social media has replaced um, the telephone and certainly uh, letter writing when it comes to mainstream communication. Many people use it as their, their primary way of, of saying what they're doing. So I think Sir Gus is stating the obvious, really, that there is a whole sea of data out there. And it's much easier to search than telephone messages, of course. And it's open source, as he said. It, it's out there. It's, it's, there's no kind of bugging required to, to tap into all that information which, of course, the likes of MI5 would, of course, be, be foolish to ignore. So I, I imagine um, that that is happening. Christopher, is it a useful source of information? And what, what are the pitfalls, do you think? No pitfalls at all. I mean, the idea that, for example, that Mubarak's lot can start putting text messages out, so what? I mean, that's, that's part of what's going on. Uh, GCHQ and the National Security Agency in, 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 in the United States at the moment are working overtime monitoring every mobile telephone call they can that's coming out of uh, Cairo. They have all the numbers of the, uh, of the chiefs of staff, uh, Mubarak himself and his people, um, including the Prime Minister Sharif. They've got them all, and they're listening to them as much as they can. That is part of what the whole cyber warfare, warfare thing is at the moment. I mean, last year, uh, the Americans, for example, uh, did a test firing on one of their communication satellites to see if they could knock it out. They did. They're trying to knock out, for example, uh, anybody's uh, uh, communication system. This is part of the whole cyber warfare, the most innocent uh, tweeting and twittering, is, is simply part of what's going on and will continue to go on in, in all forts and forms of warfare, including this low-intensity operation which is happening now. But isn't, isn't there a problem in terms of using it for any legal, any legal backing and using oh, this well kind you of can't, Yeah, I mean, for example, it's, it's rather like phone tapping. Can you t if, you, if you nick somebody, a terrorist, uh, you hand them over to the police or they nick them, and then they go to, then they go to court, can you, is, is what you got from electronic eavesdropping or whatever, is it in fact uh, admissible in a court? That's still a problem and that's still to be tested. But the fact that you know what's going on is particularly important. I mean, for example, yesterday I was reading some of the uh, <clears throat> Al-Qaeda 
um, emails. And they were saying, bring the boys back. We're doing all right here in, 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 in uh, uh, Cairo. Come back and help us. Now, that is something which the intelligence people uh, look at and they say, this is great stuff, but can they do anything about it? I mean, if you look at the moment, the MI5 in, in, in the UK is trying to monitor something like 2,000 people as suspected terrorists. They haven't got the manpower to do it, so you may have all the information. <laughs> nice idea, but more, need more, more manpower. It takes you five years to train an operator in MI5 alone. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Anna Doble, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Are we putting the lives of our bomb disposal experts at risk by making them do six-month tours of duty in Afghanistan? That's certainly the view of Staff Sergeant Kim Hughes, who won the George Cross dealing with roadside bombs in the country. His comments come in a new book, Bomb Hunters. Here's an extract from that book, read by an actor. At the end of the tour, we were all completely knackered. Six months is a long time for what we do in Afghanistan. We were all exhausted. When the firefight has been won, they still have to go forward to find and clear bombs and then come back to the base and do it again every day for six months. I'd say it was too long, absolutely much too long. Six months is a long time for doing what we do. It should be four months. The consequences of that? Well, who knows? The book was written by the Sunday Telegraph's Sean Raymond, who was asked by the paper's website if he was sending a message to ministers. Before we get ourselves involved in another war, think about the consequences of it. These guys are going to be right in the front line, and there aren't enough of them. And one of the reasons why so many casualties were taken and so many died in a period between August 2009 and March 2010 was because they were being overworked, I think. You know, the volume of bombs was so huge that you know, they were being pushed, pushed to their limits. And you make one simple mistake, and that's it. So the kit is great. The training is superb. It is gold standard and world class, and they are the best, probably the best in the world. There's not a problem there, but there simply aren't enough of them. Well, one man who has experience of the pressures of bomb disposal work is Kevin Iverson, who worked in Northern Ireland and Iraq. Uh, thanks very much for your time today, Kevin. A lot of the casualties we've seen have happened around the fourth or fifth month of a tour. What do you make of the idea that at that point they're just too exhausted to be able to work safely? Well, I think the way we currently deploy our teams, um, it's quite right to say that at four or five months, people are seriously degraded. They're very tired. But I disagree with the idea that the way to solve this is to reduce the tour length from six to four months. And that's because it's incredibly important that bomb disposal teams operate as part of the brigade. Uh, and they've got to train with the brigade. They've got to fight with the brigade. And then, in my view, they've got to come home at the same time as the brigade um, and the way you get around this, in my view, is by putting more teams in theatre to allow the teams that are already there to have a day off every two weeks and, or, or even a couple of days off a month. And by doing that, you might allow um, bomb disposal operators to operate at a higher level for a longer time. It sounds like a very sensible solution. The workload does sound pretty intense. What's your experience? Well, my experience in, in, in Iraq was, was a tough one. I, I had a pretty hard tour. Um, including losing a friend uh, and defusing a bomb without, um, without my bomb disposal robot and without electronic countermeasures at a place called Red One in Alamara. But what I did in Iraq was tough. It's pretty hard, uh, and I very nearly lost my life. But compared to what the guys and girls are doing in Afghanistan now, it's almost nothing. What our bomb disposal operators are doing in Afghanistan today is far harder than anything I did in Iraq. It's far harder than anything we've ever done in Northern Ireland. And I completely agree with Sean Raymond that the training is fantastic and the kit is good and getting better. 
But in my view, the answer lies in deploying more teams to give the teams a rest rather than in reducing their tour length. Is that likely to happen? No, it isn't likely. We don't have um, many bomb disposal teams, and those that we, that we have are either in theatre, training theatre, or just coming back. So I think what we need to do is, and I've said this before, is invest. If we need to um, recruit more soldiers to become bomb, bomb disposal operators in five years, let's do that. If we need to get people transferring in from other parts of the army to do the training, let's do that. Let's, but let's do something to try and take the pressure off the teams out there. Christopher. Just an interest as a personal thing, uh, one of my family is in the Royal Engineers and he is considering uh, going on training for a bomb disposal. And he said it's interesting the numbers of guys who are actually saying, I can do that. And one of the things that isn't a consideration which the general public might think is fear. They see this as a job to be done. They see this as part, and he does, and I think he's going, he's go, he's going for it. But he said, you've got to multiply me by a couple of hundred. So, so, Kevin, you say that you don't think the teams will get bigger, so it just seems that, that this is going to continue, this intolerable situation. Well, I know that we've increased um, the amount of teams going through training. That's a very good thing. We've increased uh, recruitment into the ammunition technical trade. That's a very good thing. And there's a time lag there. But there are also other things we can do. We've got a lot of people at the moment, a lot of very highly trained bomb disposal operators, leave the army every year. We need to keep those people. If that means paying them more, let's do that. If that means extending the service, particularly in the case of soldiers who routinely kick out after 22 or 25 years, why don't we give them um, careers to 30 years? There are other ways of increasing the amount of bomb disposal operators in service um, than just simply recruiting more, which is, which is certainly part, part of the solution. But I think all of these solutions cost a lot of money. Um, a bomb disposal operator in the Army, when I was in Iraq, I earned about £40,000 a year to defuse bombs. If I'd been a civilian doing the same job, I'd have earned well into six figures. If we need to pay our bomb disposal operators more to make sure they stay in the Army, that's what we've got to do. Well, next week the inquest starts into the death of Staff Sergeant Olaf Schmidt, who was killed on the last day of his tour. We will be hearing a lot more about the pressures they're under. Kevin Iverson, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. This is SITREP on BFBS. The political row about the decision to scrap Nimrod just won't go away. This week, one newspaper's claimed the nine-strong fleet had the same design flaws blamed for the deaths of 14 people in the loss of another Nimrod in Afghanistan in 2006. But another paper claimed at least three of the Nimrods were ready to fly when they were scrapped, something the MOD denies. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, has again defended his decision. It was too long over time. It was too far over budget. It wasn't able to fly and carry out the tasks that, that uh, it were asked of it. It should have been cancelled years ago. This government had the nerve to do it when the previous government didn't. Christopher, it's too late to save the Nimrods, but now we're hearing plans for a dozen new Chinooks for Afghanistan are under threat as well. Yeah, that's right. I just, just a quick thing on, on Liam Fox there. He said it would cost too much to make those aircraft the Nimrods fly. It would cost roughly about £200 million. That's the amount they're paying British BAEA in compensation for not... He needs you as an advisor, doesn't he? Yeah, oh, he does. <laughs> he does. Well, one party had him. Tell us about the Chinooks, then. No, uh, Chinooks, uh, we've got the idea of 12 Chinooks. The government has said, Mr. Uh, Mr. Cameron said, OK, we're going to do these. Uh, we'll, we'll have these uh, aircraft. I went along on Monday to the House of Commons to the defence debate or defence stop for questions. And the defence minister, uh, Mr. Luff, he refused to confirm the Chinooks. And basically what he says, well, we've got to look and see where they fit into the plan. Now, what's happening on, along the staff's 
corridor at the MOD in the main building is this. The Navy and the RAF yet again at each other's throats. <laughs> and the idea being is that the commando helicopters, which special forces have to have, and that's right down to, you know, the, 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 the less specialised the special forces, need these Chinooks. The RAF, it is said, the RAF is putting a lot in the way of the development of these uh, of these of these aircraft, and so there is no confirmation yet, and Mr. Luff would not confirm that those Chinooks would uh, would would go into service. If they don't, and I know we're supposed to be coming out of a combat role in uh, in 2014-15 out of Afghanistan, if we don't uh, have those helicopters, then special forces operations, at the very least, commando operations, will be questioned, and you won't even be able to train for them properly, mm. and that's the level of the difficulty. Well, elsewhere, Sir John Chilcott's Iraq inquiry held its last public hearings this week. For a third time, the former Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, gave evidence. The objective was the disarmament of... Saddam Hussein and of the Iraqi regime. The first method was diplomacy. If that method failed, then it was military action. The consequence of military action was bound to be uh, regime change. That's how it works. Uh, The point we were trying to get across to Saddam uh, and his allies uh, was that he had every opportunity to comply uh, with the United Nations obligations uh, without his regime having to be changed. And I maybe naively thought that was a very high incentive for him to come into uh, early compliance. Well, Sir John hasn't said when his final report will be published. Christopher, um, you've been following this from the very start, haven't you? Uh, when the report... 2009. You are a very, very uh, diligent pupil here. Uh, when, when this report is published, how will it change the way we decide to go to war in the future, do you think? I think the most important part is whether uh, a Prime Minister, his ministers and his cabinet understand and accept the legality of going to war. If I'm a soldier, um, does it matter to me? Yes, it does. Mike Boyce, who was the chief of the defence staff uh, at the time, turned round to Blair and said, before I send your soldiers to war, is it a legal war? And Blair said, oh, yes, it is. Uh, Every aspect of this uh, conference, this, uh, this inquiry that I've listened to, suggests that it wasn't legal war. Now, does that have uh, repercussions for the military? That's the next stage to find out. Christopher, there we must leave it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. And bye-bye for now. This is Sitrep on BFBS.